You know, what I want to do today is um, answer the question that's raised in the lyrics of that song that John recited earlier, a song that, as he said, is becoming a favorite around here, and it begins like this, what can I give to you, what can I offer to the king for all the love that you've shown, for all your mercy over me? And that's, that's a fair question, isn't it? How can we appropriately honor our king? How can we give back to Jesus what is due him for who he is and what he has done for his people? And in, of course, in one sense, you might say, well, we can never really give back to him the equivalent of what he's given to us. I mean, seriously, honor him appropriately? Give Jesus what he really deserves, the one who laid down his life, who bore our sins upon himself, who absorbed the wrath of God in our place. You and I don't have nearly enough to give him what would be needed to meet that standard. But thankfully, we're never instructed in the Bible to offer God what we don't have, only what we do have, right? And what each and every one of us do have this morning is a life to be lived and a voice to speak. And Jesus is honored when we offer to him our whole lives and with our lips speak his praise. You know, when we talk about honoring people or giving someone honor, we usually mean this, acknowledging in appropriate ways that person's worth or their accomplishments or their position, especially in relation to ourselves. So, for example, if the governor of our state walked into our worship gathering this morning and was escorted into this service by his security detail, hopefully we would all respond with appropriate respect and deference because of his position of being over us. And if he was gracious enough to hang around after the service and, and talk with the folks, hopefully none of you would like, you know, accost him or uh, walk up to him and say, hey, Johnny baby, what's going down, dude? I mean, that wouldn't be appropriate, right, for someone who is in that position. But listen, as, as important as the governor of our state is, or even the president of the United States, these men are just human officials with very limited delegated authority. It's my contention that if anyone truly deserves to receive our highest honor, it's Jesus Christ, the Lord of lords and King of kings. Back in 600 B.C., the most powerful man on the planet, was the ruler of a world empire that had its headquarters in the city of Babylon. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. And one day, Nebuchadnezzar had a, an encounter with God that kind of um, put him in his place and right-sized everything in his mind. He was basically leveled by God. And after that experience, he wrote this in Daniel 4.37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all of his works are right, and all of his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. You see, the greatest among us ought to recognize what that world ruler was saying, that God, the King of heaven, is to be honored above all. Above all. And you know that's what's going on in heaven, right? God receiving honor and praise and worship is what is going on in heaven continually, intensely, earnestly, and eternally. I mean, just witness the scenes that are recorded for us in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, that give us a glimpse into what is happening in heaven. In Revelation 4, 
there's this picture of all of these creatures. Here's what they're doing. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, then the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne, and they worship Him who lives forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. By your will they exist and were created. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, running out of decimal places. Imagine the thunderous sound as they say with a loud voice, Worthy! is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. It's like they're running out of superlatives. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. That's what's going on in heaven. Do you think that maybe when Jesus instructed his followers to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that he had some of this in mind? That the Father and the Lamb be honored on the earth as they are being honored in heaven? It's probably a bit much to expect, though, that a world of people who don't really know Christ would honor him much at all, really. Because until you've been awakened in your heart and have eyes to see the beauty and majesty of King Jesus, you probably just view him as another good moral teacher or yet another founder of another world religion. One day the glory of the Lord will cover the whole earth as the waters cover the sea. And we can long for that. For right now, I believe the greatest concentration of worship and honor for King Jesus will be found among his people, us, the redeemed, the born again, the blood-bought, adopted into his family, children of God. It's we in this present age who have the capacity and the desire to most honor our King the way he deserves and the way he desires. But I want to get real practical today. How? How can we honor our king. So from my my understanding of the Bible, let me challenge you this morning with two very practical and very specific ways that you can bring him glory, and then I want to give you the opportunity to actually do them this morning. Oh, that your life and mine would be marked by these two things. First, we honor King Jesus by publicly expressing gratefulness for his goodness publicly expressing gratefulness for how good he is. King David did this often. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 40, and there he wrote this. It's a prayer. He wrote this. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Verse 9, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. 
How do you go about honoring someone, someone that you want to esteem highly? Well, you praise them, right? And not just in private, but to other people in the presence of others. You praise them in public. That's how you honor someone. That's how we've been taught, for example, to honor our spouses, right? I truly do feel honored when I overhear my wife talking to someone and saying something about her husband, like, you know, he's, he's really a good dad, and he's a pretty decent husband, and he's a fine pastor, and he's the best-looking guy I've ever met in my entire life. <laughs> I mean, I feel honored when I hear her speak that way of me to other people. That's how we honor someone. We praise them in public, and that's what David was doing. He was declaring that uh, he was honoring God by speaking of his faithfulness and his salvation in the assembly of believers, in the great, the great congregation. Some people think that religion shouldn't be talked about that much, like it's this really intensely personal and private thing. I think, in particular, certain generations were raised this way, right? You don't, in public settings, we don't talk about these sorts of things. It's interesting, I was listening to a talk recently on Islam, and and they said, you know, in Islam, it's different than it is in the American culture. When you get together, like at a dinner party or something like that, you're expected to talk about two things, politics and religion. <laughs> but in our culture, you know, th that's usually frowned upon, right? You want to stay in, in safe territory and, and not talk about those things, and especially not religion. But sometimes I wonder if someone's religion is just so personal and so private and so not talked about that is it even existent? David certainly didn't feel that way. He didn't believe that. He knew that God deserves to be honored outwardly with our lips by telling others of his goodness and his greatness. As I said, in a few minutes, we're going to open things up where you can stand up right where you are and publicly thank the Lord for whatever you are grateful for today. You can tell of his faithfulness, his wondrous deeds, the glad news of his deliverance, in the midst of the great congregation, as David did. That seems appropriate on Thanksgiving weekend, doesn't it? To give thanks to our great king. And as I mentioned, there's some prompts to get you thinking about that on the back of your outline. You know, when I think about myself, and I find that there are seasons in my life where I'm just not that grateful, and when I search into my heart and I get honest, what I find there in those seasons is that What's happened is that I've kind of bought into the entitlement mentality that's so pervasive in our culture. You know what I'm talking about? You know how most people think that they're kind of getting a raw deal and they, they deserve a lot better life than what they actually have? Now, where does that come from? I mean, isn't that a, a, an, an entitlement mentality that says, I, I deserve more than I'm getting, and, and, you know, my neighbors got more, and my coworkers got more, and but when I, when I think about that and I get honest and I shake myself out of that mindset and I return to a biblical worldview, which tells me that actually I don't really want what I deserve. Because what I deserve in the eyes of God is judgment forever in a place called hell, separated from God because of my sin and rebellion and selfishness. And when I shake myself and think, oh, no, 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 Steve, you don't want what you're entitled to. Not really. 
No, what you want is grace, and that's what you've received from the hand of God. Then my gratefulness quotient goes up, and I start realizing this. Every day that I don't wake up in hell is a good day. And I'm receiving way more from God's hand than what I deserve. And my heart is refilled again with thankfulness as I realize that every good gift, every perfect gift comes down, comes down into my life from the Father of lights with whom is no variation or shadow caused by turning, James wrote. And gratefulness floods and fuels my soul once again. Does that make sense? I mean, the most grateful people on the planet ought to be the people of God. Because we know what we deserve, and we know we're getting grace from our Lord, from our Savior. So we're going to give you the opportunity to share in a few minutes. And I know that some of you, by personality, are more extroverted and more vocal. And um, you look forward to things like this. Like, yeah, I'm going to share some things in the great assembly here. (laughs) And we want to hear from you. Others of you are more shy and withdrawn and introverted and and the thought of maybe standing up and, you know, saying something that a lot of people would hear just frightens the daylights out of you. But you know what? We want to hear from you too. I think we'd honor the king and bless your church family to hear from both of those extremes and everybody in between, don't you? And so I want you to be thinking about that. And while you're doing that, let me mention a second way to honor our king. And this one will will not apply to all of you, but will apply to some of you. But I'd like all of us to consider this, and that is we honor our king, secondly, by, by publicly receiving the sign of our new covenant relationship with him. And the sign of the new covenant that you've entered into it is water baptism. Water baptism. Now look down at the last verse under this point. Is it Luke 12, 8 on your outline, the last verse? The words of Jesus, here's what he said. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, there's that public thing again, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God, but the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Now those are some strong words from Jesus, aren't they? What's he talking about? Well, we know what he's talking about. He's talking about publicly identifying with him, right? In other words, he's saying, look, if you're truly in a relationship with me, you will not be reluctant to let other people know that. And to shrink back from doing so gives evidence that perhaps you don't really know Jesus and he doesn't really know you. See, there's a principle in the Bible that could be stated very bluntly like this. There are no closet Christians. Not really. There aren't any secret believers. Secret believers are going to slip into heaven incognito thinking, I'm so proud of myself, no one ever knew. (laughs) People who think that way, I'm convinced, aren't really Christians. God's people want to publicly identify with him. They're looking for opportunities to identify with Jesus. And Jesus gave his followers a very specific and special way to do so. And what he did was this. He he was a master, wasn't he? I mean, he's, he's the Lord. He is the master. He did what he often 
did. He took a very common symbolic ritual in the religion of Judaism, baptism, and what he did is he, he, he updated it and he refreshed it and he pressed new meaning into it for those who would believe in him. You might know the Jews had a variety of, of in their religion, a variety of ceremonial washings and baptisms that they had done for centuries and centuries as part of their ceremonial worship. And in fact, did you know this? Any Gentile who wanted in that day to convert to Judaism, to become a Jew in religion, needed to undergo two rituals. If he was a male, the first one was circumcision and then baptism. And those who submitted to those rituals took on a new religious spiritual identity, that of being a Jew. Well, after Jesus had come and had lived that beautiful and perfect life that he lived, and after he had atoned for sins on the cross, and had risen from the dead and was preparing to ascend back up into heaven, he gathered his small band of followers, his disciples around him, and he said this to them in Matthew 28, 19, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In other words, fellas, I inserted that, fellas, go win more disciples for me, more followers for me, and go to every people group on the planet because I want my family to be a multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-colored family. Don't leave anybody out. Take my gospel to all the nations on the planet. And whenever someone believes the gospel that you preach and is converted, baptize them in the name of the Trinity. Interesting, the name, not the names of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the name, singular, hinting at the Trinity, isn't it? One God manifested in three persons. In this new covenant that we live in, being baptized signified not that they had become Jews or subscribed to the, the, the Judaistic religion, but that they were now members of the new family of God through faith in Jesus Christ and held secure in that status by all three members of the Holy Trinity. And I want to tell you, that when you're in the hands of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you're in good hands, better than all states. <laughs> Talk about feeling secure. And so in those early days of the gospel, whenever someone did that, whenever someone turned from their sinful, self-absorbed lifestyle and embraced Christ as their sacrifice and their Savior, they were baptized, like in Acts 2.41 the birthday of the Christian church. It says, the, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I hope they did tag team baptizing that day. That's a lot of baptisms. Now listen to me, the notion of an unbaptized believer is really foreign to the New Testament. I could only think of one case in the entire New Testament where there was a genuine believer who was not baptized, and you know who that was? It was the thief hanging on the cross. And he had an issue with being baptized. He was a little hung up. I mean, he, he couldn't, he had a physical impairment, right? Everybody else, every other true, genuine believer in the New Testament, after exercising faith, faith in Christ got baptized. 
by immersion in water, including an Ethiopian government official who on his way back home after a long trip one day, bouncing along the dusty trail in his chariot, didn't have his Kindle with him, so he opened up his scroll and started reading from Isaiah and was joined supernaturally by a divinely appointed, Jesus-loving Bible interpreter named Philip. So he's riding along and it's like, oh, hey, what does this mean? In Acts 8.35, it says, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. You know what the Bible's about? It's about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch, the official, said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized Let me be as clear as I know how to be with you this morning. If there has ever been a point in your life where God brought you to a place of seeing the exceeding sinfulness of your sin, and you saw it, what a stench it is in the eyes of God, in the nostrils of God, you saw your sin for what it really is, and you knew you deserved to be judged by that same holy God by being cast away from his presence forever in hell, but having heard the good news of the gospel that God sent his son Jesus to come to earth, live the life you could not live, die in your place, take your sins upon himself, receive the wrath, the righteous wrath of God that you deserve for your sins, You believe that Jesus rose from the dead so that he could give you new life. You heard that message and you responded to it by turning away from sin and embracing Christ as your Savior. If that's ever happened for you, then Jesus calls you to be baptized. He does. He calls you to honor him by identifying with him publicly in the ceremony of baptism. You see, baptism is going public with the faith that's in your heart. It's, it's, like you're, it's like your coming out party. It's the sign that you've entered the new covenant. It's the ID badge that identifies you as a member of the community of the redeemed. Those whose sins have been forgiven, washed away, not by the waters of baptism, but by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's a visual object lesson retelling the story of the gospel that you claim to believe. Sometimes people ask, Pastor Steve, why do you baptize people you know, one time backward? And I say, well, it's because that best picture is what Jesus did for us when he died, was buried, and rose again. It also pictures in a spiritual sense what happens to every believer in Christ. You died, the old you died, and you're raised to walk in newness of life, right? It's an object lesson. It's a picture. The outward sign, the outward sign of your inner spiritual union with Christ. That you're united with Him. You're a new creation. You have His life, eternal life, pulsing through your veins now. You belong to Him. It's one of the two ordinances that Jesus told His church to practice faithfully until He comes back. It's a sign of heart humility that even our King Himself, Jesus, submitted to, right? I love Jesus for many reasons, but one of them is that he's a leader that doesn't call his people to do what he won't do himself. Jesus was baptized, didn't need to be, had no sins of his own, didn't need salvation. 
but was baptized himself in humility. His own cousin baptized him in the Jordan River, setting a pattern for those who would follow him to submit to. Baptism is the divine edict for all true citizens of the kingdom of Christ. Well, sometimes when I talk with people about baptism, they say, well, Steve, I was baptized as an infant. My parents had me sprinkled when I was an infant. But the truth is, it was really later that I came to faith in Christ. It was when I was 7 or 12 or 19 or 26, 32, 47, 53. It was was later in my life that I really repented of my sins and believed the gospel. Do you think I should be baptized again, even though I was baptized as an infant? And I always give the same answer, yes. Yes, I do. You see, what happened to you back when you were a baby reflected what your parents had been taught. They did what they had been taught. There's nothing wrong with that. But you know, you really had nothing to say except, right? You were a baby. I always look them in the eye and say, now it's your choice. And just as you made the choice to transfer your trust from yourself to Jesus and be saved, you can make the choice to go public with your faith now. Yes. Yes. And many people have done that. In the last service, in the one last night, a a man in his 60s said, I got saved back in the 60s, but I never got baptized. And he humbled himself and submitted to water baptism. Others have said this to me, Does someone have to be baptized in order to be saved? And my answer is always the same. No, no. Salvation is by God's grace totally, right? Not by any of our good works, including our baptism. Thank God for that story of the thief on the cross. Jesus said, you will be with me today in paradise even though you can't be baptized. So no, baptism is not a requirement for salvation on the one hand, but neither is it on the other hand this kind of ho-hum, take-it-or-leave-it optional suggestion that Jesus made to people. He elevated it much more highly than that. It wasn't a suggestion, was it? It was a command from the king, a divine edict. Repent and be baptized. And you know what? True believers love to follow Jesus' commands. So on this Thanksgiving weekend, can I ask you a question? Are you a baptized believer? Are you, and you, and you, and you, and you, are you a baptized believer? And if not, what's holding you back? Maybe you say, well, what's holding me back is I'm not saved. And I would say to you, then please believe the gospel message that I just shared. Believe it. Believe what Jesus has done for you. Turn from your sins. Embrace Christ. And then get up in that baptistry and give public profession of it today. And let the great assembly know that Jesus is your Lord and your Savior. If you are saved, but you've never been baptized by immersion, please, please, I urge you, don't let fear or more likely pride, keep you from following Christ in this. Don't let it hold you back. I'm telling you, it would honor Jesus. It would honor the king for you to go public 
with your faith. And believe it or not, you can do that today.